Apple is putting the finishing touches on a service that will let consumers pay for an Apple Pay purchase in installments over time, which is a direct foray really into the buy now, pay later market where key players like PayPal, Kalarna, Zip and Afterpay have truly dominated. This new Apple service will be backed by Goldman Sachs as the lender for the loans that actually support the underlying installments. This new buy now, pay later scheme could further drive and entrench Apple Pay adoption and domination. Even more importantly, it's likely to influence more consumers to use their iPhone or Apple devices to pay for items instead of standard credit cards. And this is a huge shift since some recent studies out of the UK estimate that buy now, pay later took a 20% chunk out of the credit card market during the 2020 Christmas shopping season. These are big numbers. And as I understand it, when a consumer makes a purchase via Apple Pay on any Apple device, they're going to have the option to pay for it in four interest-free payments made every two weeks, or they can spread the payments across many more months, but they'll have to pay interest on that. Now, consumers are going to be able to choose any credit card to make their repayments over time, which means it adds another at least 30 days to the equation in terms of interest-free periods. Now, you might be asking yourself, why is this so significant? That would be a great question because we already have several buy now, pay later schemes that have really embedded themselves in the retail landscape. But Apple's announcement isn't significant because of its direct impact on buy now, pay later, right? It's significant because it proves that the structures of banking and financing are fundamentally shifting and changing. This week alone, we saw irrefutable evidence that banking as we know it is dying and that rigid foundations that have really propped up these banks and financial institutions are no longer as rigid as many of us might have um, counted on or expected. The recent acquisition of Afterpay is a prime example of this, right? Afterpay has never made a profit, right, or cash flow. Afterpay has no history of paying dividends to shareholders and has less than $1 billion in net assets on its balance sheet. And yet, somehow, it was acquired for an implied $39 billion valuation by Square, with the Afterpay shareholders set to pocket Square shares instead of cash. And those Square shares are aggressively priced at 120 times their forward earnings, right? So off the back of this, I want to bring uh, Kane Jackson onto the show. He's our expert this week. Kane is the founder and CEO of Maslow, a financial services startup with a goal to rebuild consumer banking and finance on a platform of inclusivity and alignment with the consumers it serves and has at times previously taken for granted. Maslow has the backing of a number of significant investors, including the ex-CEO of PwC and the Carlton Football Club president. Previous to Maslow, Kane was responsible for registering Australia's first derivative fund and is astutely aware of the significant responsibilities that come with offering a retail finances services product. Kane, welcome to the show. Rondolin, how are you going? Hey, I'm excellent. Hey, were you surprised about the re- recent acquisition of Afterpay by Square? And had you heard any, you know, rumblings in the market about it? 
I mean, I wasn't surprised in terms of timing. Um, you know, I hadn't heard any, anything uh, in, in the space around, uh, you know, them shopping around for potential acquisition targets, but, or, or sorry, buyers. But I think um, in terms of where the market's going, they're, they're seeing um, increase in bad debts. They're seeing um, decrease in growth rates. So in terms of the timing, I think it was perfect for them. Whether or not Square was, you know, something I would have considered uh, as, as a potential su- suitor, probably not in reality. Who, who did you think it might be? I would have said one of the larger consumer banks in the US would have been interested. The, uh, the buy now, pay later space has taken a lot uh, out of the traditional uh, short-term credit market. And I think uh, the banks would want to um, recapture that, but apparently not. Yeah. Do you think that the bank, do you think the banks were ever really under any extreme pressure from these buy now, pay later schemes? And you know, I, I, if so or not, why? Yeah, look, I, I think I can split that question into two parts. And for me, it comes down to traditionally, you know, the, the, the banks provide credit to people that pass their, cre- their credit tests. And uh, because buy now, pay later isn't regulated credit, they don't have to meet those same uh, standards of lending. Uh, they were going for a market that the banks weren't necessarily going for all the time. Uh, and so in, in sort of that sense, I don't see there was any true competition being put to the banks by, by the buy now, pay laters. However, if you look at how quickly they adopted uh, and acquired customers or users, um, that's got to scare any large company, bank or otherwise, in terms of if that company can later convert those customers to products that are more in uh, or more closely in their own backyard, then, yeah, that's something to, to, to be concerned about in terms of competition. What's your sense of it, though? Because this sort of buy now, pay later is a, you know, it's a distinct beast. The target market is very specific in particular. How likely, um, you know, are these people to have been upsold into different products by either the schemes or by the banks if they had done it themselves? Yeah, the assumption was always that Afterpay would, would 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 round up these customers or convert them into more traditional financial services customers, and they partnered with Westpac, obviously, to that end. Um, but the likelihood of them doing that, um, so far as I'm concerned, was always quite low. These are customers that were more comfortable dealing with Afterpay as a as a feature or a provider of a, a technical product rather than a banking or a financial services product. And I think the assumption that they were going to be able to convert, you know, these 16 million customers they had into being, uh, you know, lucrative traditional banking customers just wasn't realistic. And it's fascinating, isn't it? Because after pay and zip pay, when you talk about removing friction in financial services, they weren't exactly stellar examples, were they? No, and I, I think that's one of the crucial differences between where the buy now, pay later um, sort of add-on companies, I consider them, like your Afterpays and your Zips and the, the many others, differ from what Apple's now doing. You know, Apple is really removing that friction point at that at the checkout, be it online or otherwise, um, in person probably more significantly, the physical checkout. But it's removing that element rather than adding it. You know, if you were to buy with Afterpay, it's an extra step. It's an extra API. It's an extra login. If you buy with Apple, we're, we're all used to tapping our card. We've all set up our wallets already. We click the side button. It looks at our face and all of a sudden we're there. We've done it. And they've removed that friction point. Whereas Afterpay n- never had that ability to just essentially turn on a feature within their existing technical product that had mass adoption in a market. 
No, fair enough. And and look, to be fair, Afterpay's primary um, upside was the frequency of turning the credit around, right? It wasn't really necessarily what they made on a per transaction basis. It was the fact that the credit was being, the frequency of the credit was quite high. Yeah, the way they used their balance sheet was probably the most attractive part of their business model. Um, you know, essentially they were they were rotating that credit and earning their six percent uh, from the merchant every time it was used, despite only having to borrow it once or twice um, because it was paid off within a, 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 you know an eight week period. The banking industry has really, let's be honest, been pretty much protected from fundamental change for decades, right? How does this impact the way that traditional banks are and are likely to continue to respond to the changes that we're now seeing? Yeah, I, I think for quite some time, up until um, quite recently even, uh, the banks had really taken this position that, look, innovation was going to happen in this space, but they weren't overly concerned about it. And certainly a year or two ago, um, you know, there was not a lot happening with the banks in terms of partnerships. They weren't worried about their moats being, you know, being threatened. But I think looking at how quickly Afterpay acquires customers, and whilst it might not be in the banking space directly, it is in in the financial services um, uh, space. And so that sale to to Square with, you know, on the back of that partnership with Westpac, that's that's got to hurt the banks. You know, Westpac took a took a leap and said, "Okay, look, let's do this partnership with this fintech that we don't want to have to admit is this is is a viable threat, but obviously is." Um, and then they've been relegated to, um, you know, essentially take a back seat to the, to this sale. And I think if anything else, they're going to start looking around, saying, "Well, we have to do these partnerships, but who are we going to have to do them with, and and how how are we going to ensure that we we get something out of it as well?" And I think Westpac would be sitting there right now, one wondering what what quite happened. Yeah, fair enough. Well, it's interesting, right? Because the banks primarily, let's be honest, make their money from residential mortgages. They're not really, you know, they're not really focusing on business lending or even consumer lending in any major way because the lion's share of the revenue comes from residential mortgages. So this represents a total shift in the way that they look at their customers and maximizing their share of wallet, doesn't it? Yeah, I think, well, I think they're starting to see that the, the traditional, um, ways that they would go about acquiring a customer and then the life cycle, um, of that customer and the products that they could expose them to is changing. And, you know, they're saying that if they, if they don't capture that, uh, that customer up front um, and, and and sort of stimulate the relationship, they're not going to get those mortgages. But also, as we know, I mean, you know, the younger generations are looking at home ownership as, as less and less of a default. Um, and, and even those that are are looking for more alternative sources of finance, like Athena, for example, who are, are really undermining the bank's um, margins and, and promoting a different kind of relationship with customers. So I think the banks are looking at, you know, their traditional um revenue base and and then sort of looking at the way the tech companies are innovating and really starting to get quite quite worried about it. You know what I find fa- fascinating is the amount of brand loyalty and excitement that there is from consumers, regardless of whether a lot of them are defaulting or not, for these products like ZipPay and Afterpay. And then you contrast that with the global market perception that people have of the banks. It's fascinating, isn't it? 
Yeah, and I mean, I think, um, you know, I, I, I'm looking at something at the moment around I, what I believe will be the, the next successful sort of fintech companies or, or or tech companies in the finance space. And I think they'll either, do, they'll do one or two things. They'll completely move banking to the rear of, um, you know, the, the, a person's mind and the, the, the transaction itself, or they'll move banking over to a place where they're handing control of it back to people. And I think that we see that in in some of the sort of the DeFi principles, but people aren't aren't, aren't, aren't as uh, supportive of, of banks because I don't know that people these days really understand what banks do for them in their day-to-day life. Yeah, fair enough. Well, look, I think a lot of people um, begrudge the bank, right? It, it's a relationship that they've had to have in the past, but they're not necessarily happy about it. Yeah, certainly. And I mean, if you look at the average, you know, you know let's say your, your average sort of 22, 23 year old banking customer these days, you know, they might use a fair bit of the buy now, pay later um, offerings and uh, they deposit their, their, their wage or their salary into their bank. But their banks, all their banks are doing is really providing them a place to put that money and then spend it from. I think it's a, it's a fairly valid question for, the, for them to ask, what is my bank actually doing for me? And then, you know, to, if, they don't, if they don't answer that in the affirmative, then to look for other solutions. And that's, I think, where the banks are starting to get concerned. Yeah. Given that we're now seeing this kind of like virtual explosion in the area of financial products and services that are largely unregulated, what does this actually mean for the small businesses and also for the consumers? And is it a good thing? Uh, look, I think it's I think it's exciting for consumers, and I think it is going to herald a time of innovation and change, or a pace that we haven't yet seen. Um, but obviously, that brings with it its challenges. Um, no one's no one's sure how how much um, you know you can lend to people uh, without checking their credit their credit um, worthiness and you know the, it pushes the the onus so far back onto the consumer who has traditionally been quite protected when it comes to um, the kinds of credit that they can they can have access to uh, and that that concerns me uh, it's always concerned me and I think uh, we need to start looking at ways to regulate. Uh, the, the new entrance in this space to to a to a, a standard that pre- still protects consumers whilst not sort of um, impacting on on the innovation we're seeing because I think that is that is one of the best parts of what's going on at the moment. What do you think? Um, what do you think we could extract from buy now pay later and use to create something that is safer for consumers but also a bit more fair to the retailers in terms of the the price points because we're talking rates of three times what Visa and MasterCard were charging them to facilitate transactions. I think from my perspective one of the things buy now pay later has proven is that the financial services industry banking largely has hasn't really seen any innovative change to the underlying products that are that are offered or the way that they're offered and whilst buy, buy now pay later depending on how you look at it might be considered a digital version of lay buy where you get the product up front what it did was it was the first real change to what was a traditional product suite offered by the banks in the credit cards and Buy now, pay later came along, and people who didn't want those traditional products because, for whatever reason, they were they were unattractive or they were scary. Um, it offered them an outlet for um, you know that exploration of new things in this space, and I think that sets an incredible um, precedent. But in terms of fairness. Um, you know, as as we said before, we're 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 sort of delving into an unregulated space, and um, 
it, it, it certainly, in terms of fairness to merchants, um, you know, 6% versus 2%, well, you know, it's, it's chalk and cheese. But, you know, if you look at natural market forces, PayPal came along and, and we're going to charge 2% to the merchants. So I think it will self-regulate to some point. I just think we need to make sure the consumers are protected. You know, what I find interesting about all of this is that if you look back, you know, sort of several decades ago when credit cards were first introduced, one of the things that happened is we moved from a culture where people saved and then purchased things to a culture where we were, you know, it's more like immediate gratification. We need to have it now. We can't afford it now. So we put it on a credit card. And what we started to see is that people were gradually living more and more beyond their means. It has. And I, I think for me, you know, one of the questions, and I, I, I don't know that I have the answers to it, but one of the questions I ask is, is how can we look at these, these changing um, society, um, societal behaviours in terms of instant gratification, but look to use them to empower a positive behaviour and, and decisions rather than what, what, what can be used to target it and, and, and you know, Afterpay and the Buy Now Pay Laters did that quite well was target that instant gratification that, that the younger generations or even society as a whole is seeking but but there has to be ways to to, to use those those behavioral traits um, for good and not you know just for sort of risky behavior you know it'd be interesting if we could take the best of the features of buy now pay later and use it to somehow incentivize people to save for their retirement or save for a home if that, you know, if that's on their radar or something that they want to do, like that would be fascinating to me. Yeah, I agree. I think, um, I think we will see some more, some more, uh, businesses come out of that space. You know, I spoke the other day with Matt Home at UPay and UPay have, Built a platform uh, at, for checkout, which essentially allows people to ask someone else to pay. Whether that's you know you as a fourteen year old asking your mum to buy you a pair of shoes, or whether it's you asking your partner to buy you a birthday present, whatever it might be, instead of defaulting to a, to a credit uh, purchase at, at checkout, you pay allow you to spend your own money or if you can't or if you're if you're asking someone who would normally give you permission and they don't give you permission well sorry you can't buy those pair of shoes and I think there needs to be that added element of of behavioral change into possible products but you know we're people and we don't like being told no and so that's that's where the challenge lies. What do you think are the core elements of this new Apple offering that really make it a much more serious threat to the banks? Uh, for me, it's 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 the removal um, from the consider the conscious consideration process of a consumer in terms of what a bank does. At the moment, I, I, when I tap my phone, you know, my my Commonwealth Bank card or whatever, who I, whoever I bank with comes up, and I, I'm still seeing that that's my bank and that's who I still transfer money from and all those sorts of things. And you know, people in the payment space will, will argue that there will always be a bank involved, and I, I probably agree with them. However, what Apple's doing is is making banking a feature, and many people have spoken about the significance of that. But but Afterpay was an extra layer, and Zip is an extra layer. But Apple's removing that layer, and so it's 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 conditioning us to think less about our bank and our relationship with our bank. And that can't be a positive thing for, for, for banks in, in any way. Do you think it's possible that it's even riskier because there was that extra layer with zip pay and after pay? Do you think that it gave people to some extent a bit of pause for concern before they made the purchases? Or do you, know, do you think that it's possible that Apple Pay will result in even a more significant uplift in spending, that, you know, largely discretionary spending that people can't, you know, 
necessarily afford. Yeah, look, I think it'll be interesting to see. Uh, I think Apple certainly has more of a tendency to look towards the well-being of its customers than than perhaps a you know a, a new buy now pay later entrant is going to. Um, I think one of the issues you had with with, with um, purchasing through a buy now pay later at checkout is you you, you process the transaction and, and they don't tell you how much you owe with them and you don't see how much you owe with other um, buy now pay laters and so all of a sudden you can't really have have an overview of your of your credit snapshot and I think if 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 Apple removes uh, that layer, I think they, they certainly have a responsibility to make sure that at that time people are, are, are informed enough to make a, a decision that's um, relative and, and in their best nature, uh, sorry, in their best interests. You know, one of the things that I think is really interesting about this is we are seeing a lot of innovation come from people who have operated, for the most part, within the financial services industry for their whole career. But that's not the case with you. Do you think your bank background in having, you know, psychology, health services, even being in the Australian Army, do you think all of that stuff sort of allows you to bring a fresh perspective and a broader understanding of human experience to the topics and the challenges? Yeah, look, I think it, it, it. The platform I come from is very different. Um, you know, I deal quite closely with people who have spent their entire careers in in financial services, and these are people who are are guided by uh, basically being told no most of their careers. No, you can't build a product this way. No, you can't do this. No, no, we can't do it that way. That's because that's that's the way we do it. And not having that background, you know, yes, it presents problems in that I've got to make sure that I take advice um, on, on, on the complexities and the, and the compliance issues relative to operating retail financial services. But it certainly means that I push a little bit harder um, on saying, well, why do we have to do it that way? And and I think we're seeing more of that in the space. And you know, the 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 most innovative things I'm seeing um, coming into financial services are actually being led from people that are, are more of a tech background or or more of a um, a humanistic approach rather than this sort of compliance focused um, structured siloed industry of of, of very little change. What do you see on the horizon? Do you see regulation or do you see innovation being the core drivers going forward? I think we will see innovation and I don't think we will see too much regulation until we get to a point where um, the roles that, are, that, are, that banks play in society and uh, the broader economic stability of countries, until those things are starting are under threat, I don't think we'll see significant regulation. But the moment they are at risk, the moment that, um, you know, the strengths of the banks are undermined by uh, changes in this space um, and, and the economics of banking and finance as a whole, I think we'll see some pretty rapid um, regulation start to uh, sort of um, affect what we can and can't do. Are you aware, aware of any really interesting innovations that are on the horizon? If you have a look at some of the decentralized finance uh, principles, you know, DeFi as a, as, a, as a category is very left of center, very, you know, to the mainstream, it's very tinfoil hat. And, but, but, it, but it does have a lot of, a lot of themes in it that I think if could be, if applied within the, constraints of the traditional finance uh, system have a lot of potential. You know, peer-to-peer lending, when done right, has incredible um, incredible benefits. Uh, Sharia-compliant Shira um, banking where, you know, no one is charged an interest rate. There, there are some really interesting 
things that are starting to uh, be explored um, more on the back of this movement that's come from society away from traditional things, but but in in a way that um, sort of fits within the the system that we do have. And I think I think some interesting things are going to start popping up in the next couple of years. Fair enough. Hey, thank you so much for stopping by and sharing your thoughts on these, what I think are, you know, crucial topics that we should really be exploring in our industry. If people want to get in touch with you, they want to know more about what you do. What's the best way for them to do that, Kane? Yeah, look, the best way is probably just to head to my LinkedIn, um, uh, look at Kane Jackson uh, and, and sort of go from there. Yeah, yeah, fair enough. Thank you so much. And I look forward to revisiting this topic with you in the next few months and seeing how things unfold. Thank you so much. Okay.